Hello, welcome to this week's edition of the Africa Climate Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. Now, the restoration of the African Dryland series has come to an end. It was a six-part series in collaboration with the Global Landscape Forum GLF Africa Digital Conference. The conference hosted earlier this month was led by the Center for the International Forestry Research, C4, and the World Agroforestry Center, ICROF, collaborating with its co-founders, UNEP, the World Bank, and charter members. Now, I thought it best to invite John Colney, the Managing Director, Global Landscape Forum, to just let us know what happens next. Does these conversations on the African drylands have a place at the upcoming UN Climate Conference COP26 come November? Later on, Lopa Pius, the Program Coordinator for the Dynamic Agro-Pastoralist Development Organization, will join us to discuss one of the often neglected landscapes, the rangelands. But before then, John, thank you so much for joining us. Would you please introduce yourself? Great to talk to you, Sophie, and really thank you for having me here. I'm John Colmey. I'm the Managing Director of the Global Landscape Forum, which as of today is the world's largest forum on integrated landscapes, integrated development. And we have one objective, to build a movement of a billion people around the world, around landscapes that are productive, prosperous, and that means for small farmers, not for just the rich, equitable and resilient. And that's what we're doing. And it's great to be here. How can I help today? Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, John. Um, so just wanted us to talk about um, the GLF. So because uh, we are winding up the series, but I think it's good for us to just understand uh, GLF moving forward, but then if, maybe it's good to start with understanding the larger picture, why the GLF Africa uh, was, the conference was very much important this year for Africa. Well, this was a part of the Decade on Ecosystem Restoration, which has identified five major landscapes around the world, six if you include oceans, and that is um, forest, farms, drylands or rangelands, mm -hmm. uh, mountains, wetlands, peatlands. Uh, these are degrading or have been degraded around the world in areas the size of Latin America. And we think if we can start a movement around this to restore these landscapes and accelerate best practices, we can have a major influence on climate change, the Paris Climate Agreement, and the SDGs. Yeah. So of all those, and we felt, and the reason why we focused, although the decade came, the decade launch came three days later, we felt the drylands, Africa's drylands, was the most important right now. It's mm -hmm. for many reasons. More than I, they're just misunderstood and they're underappreciated. Mm -hmm. I don't think the world realizes that almost half of Africa is drylands. Half the population lives in these drylands and depends on them for food and for livelihoods. Mm -hmm. There's about 130 million people under threat from uh, climate change-induced migration. They're home to beautiful biodiversity. Yeah. No one understands how important they are in sequestering carbon. You think, oh, well, it's just, there's nothing out there to sequester carbon. They reduce climate change vulnerability. They enhance livelihood options for these people living within them. 60% of the population of Africa will be um, under 30 by 2030. And a large number of these young people live in these drylands. Mm -hmm. at the same time. That's all sort of the big picture. But the, there's great things happening there. Mm -hmm. there's, there's huge, wonderful uh, uh, progress made. There's great knowledge ready to be unlocked. 
and there's uh, there's a lot of hope here. And so we want to raise awareness of the world's one of the world's most important landscapes, Africa's drylands, and then look for what are the solutions in there. What is the way that we turn this picture around? We change the narrative and we find the solutions to restoring and protecting and conserving these landscapes and the people that live on them and the biodiversity yeah. they protect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And basically um, restoring this landscape, one of the things that is uh, very vital is actually the means of implementation. Apart from the government of Luxembourg um, pledge, what else was actually agreed upon out of the conference, the GLF Africa conference? Well, before the conference, uh, the French government and others pledged $14 billion mm -hmm. to work on the restoration of the Sahel, which is a large part of the drylands and yeah. part of the Great Green Wall. The amount of money, maybe it's 15 billion, maybe it's 20, but it's not so much the amount of money as how we do it. Mm -hmm. uh, restoring the Africa's drylands require a better alignment of, of policy and novel financial instruments. Financial instruments go beyond turning drylands into large scale commodity production areas, which demand really more than the ecosystem can provide. It requires investment models which are based on food production and livelihood production, jobs for the inhabitants, especially youth. Investment models have to offer opportunities for local development and contribute to creating what we're now calling a regional economies of care and it has to work with the community. So it's not about pouring billions of dollars in there. It's about being smart about how we do it and develop novel financial instruments that can give people money to stay on their land, develop their land, and farm it in a sustainable way at interest rates that aren't 35%, which would what you do if you work in an informal market. One of the things is that I've uh, found for the years that I've actually been working out um, and visiting communities is sometimes is that you find programs comes in and donors comes in and do not necessarily involve or ask communities, what do you want? What do you understand? Especially when it comes to issues um, on climate change. I'm wondering um, what GLF plans in terms of how best governments, local governments and um, international uh, institutions can work with these communities, what role do they play? Because much of the times in all comes many adaptation, they are told this is what you do, but there's these communities is a lot of indigenous knowledge and that they have that um, over the years have actually been interrupted by the climate uh, impacts. I'm wondering to what extent is GLF, um, where does GLF place um, these communities in terms of restoring these drylands and what governments on the, on the ground needs to do for a sustainable kind of way of restoring these particular drylands? I think that's a great question. There's two parts of it. One is yeah. in this conference and what GLF does is, um, is to hear from people in those communities. We try to hear from voices that you don't hear and should hear from. One of the things they told us in this one was, Restoring Africa's drylands requires a lot more than just planting trees. It requires restoring grasslands and rangelands and dryland forests that reflect the reality of the dryland ecosystems and the lifestyles of its people. So we, we listened to them and what they needed and what they want. And what they say is you got to focus on restoring these drylands and enhancing food systems first as a response to the inhabitants of the drylands whose first priority is food and nutrition security. That's, the, that's where they say to start. The communities. Now, see, GLF has got a program called GLFX, where we are going to decentralize and give chapters uh, basically to communities. 
and we're going to help them or give them whatever, look at their capacity, ask what they need from us, but let them run GLF communities and chapters that are designed for restoration that they lead and they run, and we help them raise funds, and we give it over to the community. We can't do this from the top down. I think that's one of the central messages of the GLF in general. It's no longer about the North coming down to help the South. We're in a huge climate challenge here and COVID has brought it all home. We are in one world, one working together and we have to be a partnership. And the best knowledge is at the community level. Mm, absolutely. Um, the conference is over and um, there was a lot of um, things that were actually achieved and agreed upon. I'm wondering how moving forward, what does the GLF larger picture look like for the year? Well, from here we go to the Amazon, which is a similar kind of issue. It's reaching a tipping point and we call it uh, solutions from the inside out. So like mm -hmm. we did here, we'll be talking to scientists from the, from the Amazon. We'll be talking to communities, indigenous leaders and others. To, they know what has to happen to change the, the pathway that it's currently on. But after that, we go to the COP and a COP will have three days, forest, forest, food, and finance, the three pillars of sustainable development, in our opinion. Mm -hmm. And we will bring speakers from this African conference, and we will bring the messages from here to the world. And that will be a very large global conference. And we'll bring leaders and scientists from Africa and talk about, and also not just talk about drylands, but in this case, we're talking about drylands. We will bring the leaders, the farmers and others to Glasgow digitally, because I don't think we should travel anymore, yeah. to say and raise awareness. We need to raise awareness of Africa's drylands, how important they are to the world's climate, how important they are to a very large percentage of the African population, and how important they are to the livelihood of the world. I mean, the sustainability of the world and its biodiversity, huge biodiversity in the African drylands are beautiful really, really beautiful underappreciated landscapes. And mm -hmm. if anyone in America has ever been to the prairie and they see, you know, North Dakota, how beautiful it is, then they can imagine how beautiful Africa's drylands are. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually home to the big five, basically. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. John, thank you so much for joining us today. But before I let you go, your, your final word, please. I think the world has to appreciate how important these African drylands are. How important they are in terms of biodiversity, how important they are to the continent of Africa, and how important they are to the climate of Europe above them. These are critical, beautiful landscapes, and it's full of hope. That's my message. This is not a world we're not going down the tube. There's answers out there. There's solutions, and the community has them. Working together with scientists from all over the world, we can, we can do this. So this is a message of hope in the drylands. Let's change the narrative. And let's go work with those communities and restore these beautiful lands. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and I sincerely appreciate. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much, Sophia. All right. Thank you. As I promised you earlier on the show, Pius will be joining us to talk about rangelands. In Africa, approximately 51 million square miles of land is classified as rangeland. That makes 43% of the continent's land. So I'm really grateful that you joined us today. And I'm sincerely appreciating you finding time to join me today. Thank you. Yeah. So we could start with an introduction, just who uh, LOPA is and the institution we work for. Good. Uh, thank you, Sophie. Um, LOPA Pires. I'm 
I work with the Dynamic Agro Pastoralist Development Organization here in Uganda, but in Karamoja subdivision, the pastoral area. And I work as a project coordinator for two projects that are funded by different organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically, we work with pastoralist communities and agro pastoralists. These are pastoral youth, women, and men uh, impacted by climate change and the issues related to livestock health, natural resources. And so uh, I would be glad to discuss about the rangelands management and climate change issues in relationship to pastoralism. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Pius, I just want us to start basically when we talk about rangelands, what areas are we talking about and how important are these lands important in Africa? Well, rangelands are natural ecosystems that provide a vast kind of that was the vast kind of ecosystems. And these are basically shrublands, uh, these are basically grasslands, shrublands, and also areas with sparse population in terms of tree coverage. And so they are mostly savanna grasslands. Uh, and we, when you find across Africa, they are basically areas concentrated around the drylands and not even in areas that are of freshwater kind of uh vegetation or freshwater ecosystem and in most cases in africa so far uh it's estimated that 43 percent of africa's land is covered by rangelands mm -hmm. and approximately it's 51 million square miles of africa mm -hmm. and it's uh, a lot of it is uh, around the crater Horn of africa mm -hmm. and and parts of uh, south african south africa countries like uh, mm -hmm. Angola, Zimbabwe, and and Zambia, and parts of Mozambique. So, mm -hmm. and in most cases, uh, these areas are occupied by pastoralists. These are large-scale herders. Let me say, people practicing livestock keeping in an extensive kind of system, mm -hmm. in which the livestock is raised in a natural ecosystem where livestock is fed. Yeah using a sun-fed system of photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and I'm, I'm just um, listening to you speak and I'm wondering, someone listening to us might actually think and wonder, but anyway, these are vast land that, you know, one tree is there, the other one is there, they're basically shrub, uh, the shrubs are the ones that you find mainly there. But I'm wondering in terms of biodiversity and their importance, in terms of internationally, for us regulating the, the global temperatures, how important are these particular rangelands? Well, uh, first of all, uh, rangelands are not that just plain lands that cannot okay. contribute economically to Africa. Yeah. Uh, when you say rangelands, these are important kind of ecosystems in Africa that provide critical biodiversity hotspots. And mm -hmm. even to say, this Africa's rangelands are home of Africa big five game. Big five, These are elephants, yes. buffaloes, lions, mm -hmm. leopards, etc. Mm -hmm. And they are also home to critical ecosystems ranging from semi-arid to arid conditions. And so these grasslands and shrublands or savanna provide even the resources required for extensive livestock-based industries. Mm -hmm. And 
and food systems, including pastoralism that feeds billions of people around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, also knowing that pastoralism is a solar-powered food system which needs less or no external inputs, such as mm -hmm. feeds, pastoralists manage variable environment, the root mobility. And mm -hmm. So pastoralism alone does not degrade the rangeland, rather it utilizes and making the resources there available for human consumption mm -hmm. at different stages of livestock value chain. Mm -hmm. But uh, when you look at the rangelands, they face a lot of challenges in terms of uh, uh, their kind of neglected ecosystems that have received significant kind of less attention than other systems such as forests and wetlands and marine. Mm -hmm. So now affected by land degradation. And when you find the rangelands, most of its land degradation issues come around extractive industries or activities of expansion of cities. For example, if you were to look at Nairobi, mm. that could have been a rangeland area for, for wildlife conservation and yeah. pastoralism. Could be a home of Maasai people, but because of expanding cities, mm. so the Maasai had to be pushed and a conservation area had to be established uh, without participatory involvement of pastoralists. You see that situation generally. Mm. Mm. These are places like Masai Mara, uh, like the Nairobi National Park, and they have um, extreme importance in terms of the money, economic importance that these rangelands bring to different countries. Like you'll find, um, depending on the country that you are, because it's not necessarily vast lands that you find in the northern Kenya where they are not probably, but I'm wondering, um, these are areas that are economically very important to these countries. But then again, every other time they keep being pushed. In, in Kenya, we saw the Amboseli National Park land being hived off for planting avocados. I understand avocados are very important in terms of um, exports at the moment as we're speaking for the country. But then again, these are areas that um, accumulated. This is this. These are areas that we have wild animals that tourists come, and so it's a huge source for in terms of economy for economic importance for this country. But why is it so easy to hive off? Why is it so easy to um, explore these particular areas? Why is it so easy not to protect these areas as compared to rainforests? Well, uh, this due to most of these uh, rangelands are very productive in many capacities. Uh, it can also be productive agriculturally for crop production, especially if this is engineered around irrigation systems. Mm -hmm. But of course, it does not mean that the rangelands have in one way or the other does not contribute economically to national GDPs. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I know about rangelands is that their ecosystem is suited to what productive activities take place in such areas. Mm -hmm. Because uh, if you are to introduce crop production, you would either make losses or you have to do a lot of resources in a kind of irrigation to support the projects, such as that one of uh, crop production. But mm -hmm. uh, with the rentalance across Africa, is that most of the, the areas are invested for tourism kind of activities because of the host of wildlife. And this wildlife uh, is taken by foreign investments. When you look across Africa, Kenya as an example, it's the foreign investors who take yeah. charge 
and yeah. they invest much on tourism. And mm. this tourism is taking place in the rangeland. Mm. And then look at the rangeland ecosystem. Somebody will say uh, pastoralism is not sustainable. It degrades the landscape. It, it kind of uh, pictures pastoralism as a bad practice mm. because of what those people who do it look like. Mm. Because we, we look at pastoralism because we, they don't look like us. Mm-hmm. And when we say pastoralists themselves, I used to ask a question. In Africa, we have uh, large herds of buffaloes. Yeah. So when you look at an equal number of buffaloes compared to livestock together, how comes the buffaloes do not degrade that area despite of the concentration? Mm-hmm. But then, what about the cows? These are all herbivores. They eat vegetation. Mm-hmm. How comes the cow degrades is considered to be degrading the landscape than the equal number of buffaloes that stay mm-hmm. in the same area but also move from landscape to landscape? Mm-hmm. So this is all about misconceptions by conservationists looking at putting pastoralism at the sphere of land degradation than to putting it at the sphere of land restoration. Mm-hmm. You see that that's where there is a disconnect between conservation and pastoralism. Mm. Yeah. That is very interesting you mentioned that because the the research I was reading, another research actually um, that was done in terms of by, um, there was a project that was being done in terms of improving, uh, managing this pastoral lands that the, the assumption was that there's a lot of degradation of these particular lands and then um, the pasture doesn't regenerate enough to accommodate all these livestock. Then again, there was also the question of overgrazing because then again, the number of livestock that are being killed by pastoralists is too high as compared to how fast these pastures can regenerate because of climate change. So I don't know what you'd say towards that in terms of contribution, uh, livestock's contribution to land degradation. Uh, well, uh, when when people talk about uh, overgrazing by livestock, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do not. I personally do not agree uh, that overgrazing is caused by livestock. I mm-hmm. think it's just kind of in uh, concentration that causes the kind of overgrazing in an area. Mm-hmm. For example, in a place where people stand from day from morning uh, to sunset. Mm-hmm. People stand from an area. At the end of the day, the pasture or the grasses around that area uh, mm-hmm. could be already destroyed off. So yeah. then you imagine cows being concentrated in one area. And how in that landscape, how do these animals have to cope up because they are being concentrated? They have to feed on that vegetation and they have to finish it up, and then, of course, what's left is a bare landscape at the end of the day. Yes. Uh, when, when Due to mobility, you know pastoral is managing variability, and the management of variability is in terms of mobility. Pastoralists move from place to place yeah. because they do not want to, to degrade a certain point of the landscape because it means that when they degrade that landscape, they are doing a disservice to it and mm. the impacts back on their livestock and their families. Yeah, yeah. So when in point A, as an experienced person, I have, I have grown up from a pastoral household. I used to graze animals 
these animals will regress from point A and after a period of two months, it's they regress in point B. And these are areas mapped in beginners by beginners knowledge. These are known areas for grazing, yeah. dry season grazing, wet season grazing. Mm -hmm. So uh, I see no overgrazing in pastoralism than zero grazed animals because mm -hmm. zero grazed animals actually even produce a lot of carbon uh, methane and carbon dioxide gases mm -hmm. because these are animals being fed time in a time uh, they are not given time to relax and so there's that concentration of fossil fuel uh, from soya and from the pastures produced mm -hmm. so I just imagine of pastoralism that is being solar powered, solar powered in terms of directly benefiting from natural ecosystem, mm -hmm. uh, directly surviving from natural waters, mm -hmm. uh, directly uh, providing uh, necessary food needs for mm -hmm. the household, mm -hmm. and uh, directly uh, contributing uh, in terms of seed dispersal in landscapes, and then someone will say you are overgrazing. When mm. that's why the Africa's drylands are of high biodiversity kind of concentration in terms of different plant species, mm. especially the acacias with the high value of economics. In terms, even uh, even to say even urban centers benefit much from from pastoral products, mm -hmm. uh, especially livestock, meat, meat, milk, etc. Mm -hmm. Even charcoal, forest products, let me say, uh, it is considered that uh, the charcoal that goes to Nairobi mm -hmm. is coming from the pastoral areas. Yeah. And who does yeah. this? It is the herbanist who go to invest in charcoal production in these landscapes. Mm -hmm. So I just imagine where a pastoralist is penalized uh, for charcoal production, yet yet he doesn't know even yet he doesn't use he doesn't know how to do the charcoal production apart from you who is in the urban town who comes in to introduce him how to make charcoal. Mm -hmm. So you see that kind of uh, uh, trajectory mm -hmm. in between that. Mm. So are you saying that? Um free-range kind of grazed cows do not contribute more, are actually more beneficiary in terms of different aspects. So because you mentioned about solar grazing. So solar by solar grazing, let me get you right, you mean where cows are grazed freely and so they eat the food that is actually grown naturally they, they are within as they graze, they have the natural water, uh, um, fed in natural water areas and stuff like that. And so they're able to move around and the one of the of the of the contribution is seed dispersal and you comparing that to um, zero grazed cows whereby they are, they are fed all the time and they, you have to of course find them a water source and everything so they don't move from one area to another and you're saying that they concentrate more in terms of methane is it what you're saying as comparing the two yes yes please uh, okay. of course as you know uh, the pastoral system uh, distributes the seed through the through the fecal matter yeah. when when the cattle move from place to place they, you ensure that you are either distributing nutrients, nutrient content, and the seed. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And you know, uh, some of the national seeds uh, do, do not, uh, which undergo dormancy, have to undergo an animal rumen or mm. kind of water to, to break the dormancy. Mm -hmm. Some of these pastures are distributed in the landscapes. And for example, uh, like uh, uh, the Turkana always migrate to Uganda during yeah. dry season. Yeah. So in the process, they migrate and these animals are carrying seeds mm -hmm. either on their skin or, or even in their rumen. And mm -hmm. by the time the animals reach Uganda, they, they, they dispose the seeds, I mean, deposit the yeah. seeds yeah. in these grazing areas. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, uh, by one year or after the rain season, we mm -hmm. see new plants emerging in that landscape. That landscape. And so, mm -hmm. uh, and it's an example of uh, prosopsis mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. has, that has uh, entered in Uganda's rangelands uh -huh. because of the migration of the Turkana. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, we know prosopsis is a dangerous plant, mm -hmm. but it's an, one example of a biodiversity kind of landscape mm -hmm. where seed is moved by cows to new areas. Mm. One of the very beautiful projects that I actually visited was actually in Isiolo and in Isiolo, Kenya, and what they were actually doing is, is, is going back to the old system of grazing system whereby the grazing period was known. And um, what I appreciate is that across the pastoralist communities, they've always had a grazing system, an ancestral kind of way grazing system where it was known during the rainy season, this is where we go, during the dry season, this is where we graze. And so what this project was actually doing was asking the communities can you re revisiting the grazing season and one of the things that I've seen um, the, going back to that kind of system uh, shielding them from effects of drought have climate change impacted uh, the grazing season like if you observe, observed among the Karamoji people to what extent have climate change impacted the grazing system within rangelands in, in Africa yes uh, well we cannot uh, cross climate change from pastoralism, it has impacted a lot on pastoralism, especially alteration of the grazing pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, because pastoralists believe in in certain features or indicators from natural signs of weather and maybe migratory birds, plants, and so on, to indicate time for migration to another location. Mm -hmm. And these, are, these, these seasons have changed or these indicators have, have disappeared, for example. Mm -hmm. And so now what it's now about uh, adapting to processes that take place. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of one overtime kind of experience that pastoralists are also undergoing. And uh, for example, now in Karamoja, uh, there are certain factors that have also limited the patterns of migration of mm -hmm. livestock from place to place. Mm -hmm. And this could be attributed to rainfall changes. Mm -hmm. And this is attributed to change in landscape, vegetation over time, mm -hmm. and also other indicators such as conflict over land use issues related. And so especially land use has altered the, the migration or grazing pattern of pastoralists because more, more, more small cities or more small towns are emerging up mm. and and these small towns are occupying space 
uh, also they are more agro-pastoralists or farmers, mm. people mm. practicing crop agriculture yeah. in in ecosystems that have fresh water or that are evergreen. And so this has basically altered the, the grazing pattern. Mm. Of course, not forgetting the climate impacts uh, caused by these other land use activities. Mm. Knowing that uh, climate change is directly a result of change in, in land use, not mm. basically changing in a, in a productive system, but general land use. Mm. Because when you occupy an area that is basically a natural forest area mm. and introduced a, a certain land use type, like a, a settlement and a settlement or crop agriculture, it means you have altered the ecosystem or you have altered the climate of that area mm. and it's expected with time to impact more on on the species that were benefiting from that ecosystem. Because of climate change, they are, of course, now changing the mindset and, of course, now uh, changing over, some of them are changing over reliance on pastoralism and so that is why they are investing in agro um, activities and stuff like that, even farming along natural rivers. Um, how would you think that moving forward, because then again, reality is uh, climate will keep changing and that's the, the new reality that we are in. How do pastoralists keep doing pastoralism in the age of climate change in a sustainable way, in a way that they still economically um, benefit and they grow, uh, but also in terms of realizing that climate is here with us and it's here to stay. How do you keep um, doing pastoralism in the age of climate change? Uh, well, I think uh, this has to come at the level of policy and uh, policy and different frameworks or legislation issues. Uh, when pastoralists themselves adapt to changes in climate change, but then does the government or legislators uh, move according to situations or the policies uh, developed accordingly to restore or to protect the landscape? Mm -hmm. And one one thing that needs to be thought about is that recognition of the rights of pastoralists and rangelands is key before even uh, thinking about how to engage pastoralists adapt to climate change. Do you first recognize their rights and the rangelands capacity mm -hmm. that it needs protection? Then the next thing that is important is how do should the government or are you recognizing the extensive livestock production and mobility as an important key in, in restoration and revitalization? Are we supporting food systems? Then the other thing is, how are we strengthening the grassroots governance structures, capacities to support in natural resource management, ensuring environmental protection is critical or is key for livelihoods? Are we restoring degraded landscapes through participatory rangeland management uh, by engaging different stakeholders, women, children, uh, pastoralists, and conservation? Then the other thing that I could also add is that are we improving and making data available mm. on rangeland pastoral people? Is it available to facilitate planning and discriminate monitoring yeah. of land neutrality? and livestock population. 
data mm-hmm. is not available about Rangeland in terms of uh, the, the coverage, mm-hmm. how much Rangeland exists in country and the pastoral population, including the livestock population. So, so this alone uh, is making it a challenge for, for policymakers in terms of making decisions around rangelands and factories. So improving and making data available, data available for rangelands, pastoral people, and livestock numbers population will facilitate a process of planning, decision-making, monitoring of land degradation neutrality, mm-hmm. and also types of population for, for planning purposes for research and location. Mm-hmm. So, and also the other is uh, the last point I was talking about is the conflict management, which is related to Rangeland. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing that, that African pastoralism is, uh, is worsened by armed and violent conflict. Yeah. So, uh, restoring governance uh, means also restoring Africa's resource in in areas like land, land use management. Mm-hmm. So, that's the key areas I was talking about when we talk about how best can we support pastoralism to be sustainable in the age of climate change. All right, absolutely. And I think um, you mentioned conflict, and I'm thinking political will, because then again, you find this are um, mainly find this pastoralist kind of areas are very rich when it comes to natural resources. And then, of course, there is a lot of um, management issues and, of course, conflict arise part of it because of it, part of it, I would say so. But then again, I'm wondering in terms of political will and also good governance, to what extent does it play in making sure that um, these areas are sustainable and not just only sustainable, but these areas conflict is well managed within this particular or avoided in these particular areas. Uh, well, first of all, when it comes to governance issues mm-hmm. uh, in pastoral areas, uh, looking at how our national government theory, first of all, there is limited kind of recognition given to pastoral lands or pastoral people. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the development indicators in such areas, it, these are very, very low. Uh, what does it mean? It means that less economic uh, kind of recognition is still put aside when it comes to pastoralism. Uh, when you see the leadership strain around the pastoral area, mm-hmm. you'll find that leadership is constrained because of the misconception put on the face of pastoralism. So you'll find that uh, at national level, they are very limited or no policy framework in support of pastoral productive systems. Mm-hmm. And when you look at East Africa alone, I think it's only Kenya that has got the policy uh, for pastoral development policy. Mm-hmm. And in Uganda, we, we only adapt international policies by mm-hmm. becoming part of the, the signatories in international policies on Rangeland and pastoralism, but we do not domesticate some of the policies because mm-hmm. of what we want to invest on pastoral areas. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that the international framework on pastoralism, like the HAYU framework, uh, recognizes the rights of pastoralism on land rights and the rights for transhumanism or mobility. But then how do we domesticate these rights in two policy frameworks that support the development of pastoral land? 
So Uganda alone is 13 percent. So mm. it's practically the national politics or actually. Mm. Yeah. And that means if the policies are poor, then even the allocation of funds that goes towards these particular pastoral areas is also low. Yes. All right, Pius, we have to end this conversation. Thank you so much. I sincerely um, appreciate you taking time to join, but I just would do uh, like, I would just want to invite you to just give us your final words. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, it was a nice conversation. Uh, if I'm to sum up, the pastor is generally of challenges that that are that are very expansive it, it ranges from land degradation to lack of recognition by national government to conflict due to competing land uses lack of participatory involvement in policy development in adequate data available for regulants and the people and then when degradation alone is very rich so when you look at degradation alone, uh, it impacts on Africa pastoral food system change. And in that way, it limits access to vital resources for women, children, pastoralists, like food, livestock, pasture, and water. Uh, land degradation also limits access to vital nutritious food and human for humans and animals. And it also increases women rights abuse across Africa. But when we sum up all this, we really need a strong policy background that can support pastoral development across Africa. Knowing that regulations could uh, vital resources, for example, extractive, uh, tourism, uh, also it has cultural kind of diversity that supports uh, economics in Africa. And so by holding this through the cognition of the International Year of Rangelands and Pastoralists, mm -hmm. that can put a face of pastoral to national government. That if we can recognize them at national international or global level, why not also recognize them at our different local level? Mm -hmm. So this is most important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, absolutely. Thank you so much, Pass. Thank you. I appreciate you taking time. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well said, if these rangelands can be recognized internationally, why can't they be recognized at the national level? And that concludes restoration of the African Dryland Series, a six-part series on the Global Landscape Forum, Africa Digital Conference, led by the Center for the International Forestry Research, CIFO, and the World Agroforestry Center, ICRAF. This was in collaboration with its co-founders, UNEP, the World Bank, and its chapter members. Join me next week for another edition of the Africa Climate Conversations podcast. But in the meantime, please log on to www.africaclimateconversations.com to listen to the rest of the series. Also, remember we are on Spotify, Google Podcast, iTunes, as Africa Climate Conversations, and every other channel you access your podcasts from. Kindly also send us your feedback using info at africaclimateconversations.com. But until next week on Tuesday, Kwaheri, my name is Sophie Bokwa. <laughs>